Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There's a passage of Scripture that uh, is one that, just from a cursory glance, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It comes from one whose wisdom was uh, comparable only to Christ. You say, who's that? A man by the name of Solomon. Solomon was given the gift of wisdom by God to be able to administrate skill and living, but he wrote a book that uh, was a book that almost sounds like it was written at the end of his life, and it was designed to get young people to think about their Creator in the days of their youth. That's what Ecclesiastes 12 says. One of the things that it says right in the middle of it is one that is startling, and it says this. It's a comparison statement. It says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. What it's saying is that it's better to go to a funeral than it is to a party. I mean, that doesn't make sense. Why, why is it better uh, in any estimation? And if you were to, to give people a choice on the street, which would you rather go to? Hands down, it would be the party. But in wisdom, Solomon says, it's good for you to have to go to a funeral. And you say, well, why is that? Well, it's because of something that occurs when that event takes place and you're faced with it. It's that serious questions are asked. Okay? At a party, you can ignore. You know, you, you can drown your sorrows, as the world would say. But the, the fact is, is you, can, you can escape the realities of life and the thinking about it. But when you come to a funeral, there's sobriety. There's a seriousness, and it's at that point that serious questions are asked, and hopefully they're answered. It was, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, a time in the church congregation at Thessalonica that there was a seriousness going on in their own soul. There had been members of that church, even though it was young. It was not, uh, you know, we'd say an old church, because at this point it was only a couple of years since it had started, that members of that church had died. Whether it was due to persecution or just by natural causes, they had passed away, but they had passed away. And that had caused, in some of the believers' thinking, to go, well, what's next? How do these things, you know, how, what, what's next when it comes to someone dying? What's next for them? We're still living. The Lord, in their mind, the Lord could come back at any time. And, and they were thinking this, but they're thinking, okay, what happens to those that have died in Christ, have died and gone on before? What happens to them in the future? These are serious things. It's a matter of life and death or eternity or separation from god they they began to question what was going on in the churches we've had this series in a church that is attempting to connect with the world but are connecting attempting to connect with one another this is a serious thing what happens to those that go before us what happens in the relation to the returning of the lord they were a young church 
people had saved or died, what happened to them. The concern of the Thessalonians was not simply wrapped around the destiny of the deceased, but rather the relationship between the resurrection and the rapture of the believers. But what you have is that there's probably some false doctrine or bad teaching that had come in that they were, well, not right in their thinking. And for the Apostle Paul writing this letter, there were several things that he puts down in this section, especially in chapter 4 and 5, that are things that concern him, that he sees are things that are worthy of his his writing uh, back to this church. They were getting some things wrong on what's going to happen. And the event that was talked about here is known as the rapture. But a cursory look as you go through verses 13 through 18, you don't see the word rapture. I mean, that's, that's the event that is spoken of, and you go, okay, where do we get this idea that this is talking about a rapture? Well, as you read through the passage, you are going to uh, see in verse number 17 this statement, caught up together. That word caught up was translated, originally written in Greek, but it was translated into Latin. It's one of the first languages used by uh, the church for a number of years. People were using this in the church, and so they had uh, Bibles that were in Latin. And the word in the Latin for being caught up or snatched is the word rapture. And so that's where we get this term, the rapture, from. It it is a term from our Bible, that is, from the language of the Bible, but it's from uh, using the Latin uh, Bible that uh, we get this term rapture, where we could just call it the the catching up or the being caught up, whatever you want to call it. But that's the event that the Apostle Paul declares. And for us this evening, hopefully we get a better understanding of what's going to happen at the rapture. What is it? What's this event that's next for those that have died in Christ and those that are alive in Christ? This event called the rapture. Let's look at verse 13, read through to verse 18. It says this, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Now understand that term asleep. Okay, that's talking about people who died. That's the term, and we'll explain what it doesn't mean, but that's what the term is uh, used here as. Them which are asleep, that you sorrow uh, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words." The Apostle Paul starts off this section and acknowledges the fact that ignorance about future events is not an unusual thing. You go, why? Well, if we were to be on our own without the Scripture, it's because we couldn't see beyond. We couldn't see what's next, and if people don't have the Scripture, they can be confused. And so sometimes, as the Apostle Paul declares here, ignorance is just simply maybe due to a lack of teaching. You know, they, 
We don't know exactly what went on in that short period of time that the Apostle Paul had to be with his church and what he got to explain as far as doctrine and teaching, uh, but it may very well have been that uh, the time that he had to talk about this event wasn't very long, and perhaps some had missed out on this. They were ignorant because of lack of teaching, or sometimes people can be ignorant about what's going to happen in the future because they forget. I mean, that, that's not an unusual thing either. People are forgetful, and we tend to think of ourselves as being a better uh, memory keeper than we really are. We forget a lot of things. Uh, and it could very well be that some of this congregation had just plain old out and out forgot what he taught them, what he had told them. But that sometimes happens with people when it talks about future events. They just don't even know. And sometimes you could have people who are ignorant, and it's due to, uh, I would put it this way, errant conclusions or logical jumps. You know, they simply say this, and they go, well, this must be the case, and this must be the case, and they may be using background. I mean, these people were coming out of a culture that believed that matter was evil. You know, what does that mean? They didn't believe the body went anywhere. That's why the Apostle Paul had for a, a lengthy time in 1 Corinthians 15 talked about the resurrection. He had a group of people who their worldview was this, is that the soul went somewhere, the body just stayed in the ground and deteriorated because all matter was evil. And there's no way that that could go to heaven. And that was their thinking. Uh, and you go, well, where are they getting that from? It was a, a bad start. They had a wrong thinking beforehand and they logically came to the conclusion, well, people are buried in the ground their body doesn't go to glory uh the apostle paul had to fix some of that and so when it comes to future events there are sometimes people that just come to conclusions you know out of their own thinking but they're wrong they're they're errant and bad and the apostle paul is uh, answering for these people the issue the, the the issue is not so much the rapture itself Okay, that's not really the issue. The question is, what happens to those that died in Christ? They kind of remember the fact, well, the Lord's going to come back and take us. But what about those people that, in their mind, you know, they, they're going to miss out because they have, their body has been put in the ground. Their soul may be with God, but they, they, what happens to that body? Does it just not come forth or the like? And that's the major issue about these individuals that are described as those that have died through Jesus or are the dead in Christ. Understand, uh, when a person dies, the Apostle Paul was very clear that their body was in the ground, but they were not asleep in the sense of, in some sort of state of, you know, whatever, suspended in animation, as you might put it, or, or just kind of shut off for the time that they're in the ground. No, because the Apostle Paul elsewhere had made the statement, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 is a good passage for you to remember. Because people go, well, where is that person? Well, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says this, Paul says, we are confident. I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So that statement uh, is probably one that Paul trumpeted to this church at Thessalonica, that people who die, their soul is automatically in the presence of God. The immaterial part of them is there enjoying the presence of God. I mean, some have 
concluded that perhaps when you talk about people that are dead and that they're asleep, that, okay, there's some sort of soul sleep. That's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this passage. It's just a natural term when you look at somebody who's in a in a casket in modern day, but uh, even back when, they would refer to people as being asleep. It looked like they were asleep. But their soul was in heaven. And so the question is, here you have these people who have died in Christ. Now that is an important term. Because that term distinguishes people from other groups of people. When you think about that statement in Christ, and as you go through that statement, it is used about people for the first time and throughout the New Testament to describe people that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Back in the Old Testament times, you had people that would believe God and what he said, but they didn't understand about Jesus. They didn't understand about Christ. They just simply took God at his word, had faith in him like Abraham did. We talked about him this morning in Genesis chapter 15, where God told him, you're going to have a seed and you're going to have a, a land and you're going to be here. And it says this, that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He had a righteous standing because he believed those things that God had declared to him. But when you get to the New Testament and the revelation of Jesus Christ and him dying on the cross, you now have individuals that put their faith in Christ and then they are in Christ. We have a baptism when we talk about uh, this one, baptism, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to newness in life. You know, you're picturing yourself in Christ. That's what baptism is, that you are in Christ, that your life now is Christ's. And this term talking about the dead in Christ, uh, what we have is a distinction between this group and the group in the Old Testament. There were people saved in the Old Testament, but they weren't saved in Christ. And understand, it's not that Christ's death wasn't sufficient for them. They believed what God had revealed to them, looking forward to a Messiah. They were looking forward to this, and there's many people who are saved. But that term, in Christ, is used to describe New Testament believers. And you say, okay, why is that important? Because this event is for people that are a part of, and we would put it this way, that are a part of the church. They're in Christ. This distinguishes uh, the church, and if you look through the Scripture, and if you're going to have a, a, a good grasp on what happens in future events, people have to understand that the church and the nation of Israel, people in the Old Testament that they were believing, those Old Testament saints, there's a different plan that God has for each group. The New Testament church, as you look through it, uh, was not uh, mentioned in the Old Testament. It was not uh, a revealed plan until you have the nation of Israel that rejects their Messiah and he's cut off and suddenly you have this uh, statement of the Lord telling you, I'm going to build a church which is filled with Jews and Gentiles. They're going to gather together and they're going to proclaim the message that I need proclaimed. But the church is here temporarily. 
The nation of Israel has a plan that God has not fulfilled yet. And I'm not going to get into all the details, but understand this, that the nation of Israel had 490 years that God was going to work with them, and they've only had 483 to this point. Say, where do you get this? Daniel chapter 9. And you read through that. There's 483 years, or 69 sets of seven, that the Lord hasn't done a work, or hasn't finished his work yet. His whole goal is to bring the nation of Israel to a faith in Him. You look at the nation of Israel right now, not even close. They don't believe, uh, many of them are atheists, and they most definitely do not believe that Jesus is God. They don't. But God's got a plan for them that has to be fulfilled in a time period known as the tribulation there's still seven years left. This is why when you get to the book of Revelations, there's this, this time period that adds up. Seven years, seven years. It's three and a half and three and a half, seven years that happens. It's because the Lord still has a work to do with the nation of Israel to bring them to the point where he comes back and steps down upon the earth at the Mount of Olives. You read about it in Zechariah chapter 14. The disciples were told that the Lord would return back to the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 1, uh, but he's got to come back, step down on the Mount of Olives. He's going to rescue the nation of Israel from the armies of the world. And the nation of Israel will look on whom they have pierced. They will weep and mourn, and the nation of Israel will be saved as in a day. Okay, that's the plan God has for Israel. The plan for the church is that we're to function until that time that the Lord is going to go, okay, I'm now going to work back again through the nation of Israel and proclaiming uh, my name and proclaiming that amazingly that the, there's going to be individuals of Jewish descent that are going to be proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God, and that it's going to happen during the tribulation. But the church isn't here for that. We went through the book of Revelation. As you read the book of Revelation, you go through uh, chapters 1 through 3, and there is mention of the church, one thing after another after another. There's so many mentions of the church, but then you get to Revelation chapter 4 when the events of the tribulation start, and you have no mention of the church until the very end of the book where it says, you as churches, read this letter. Tell people what's about, you know, going to happen and let them know what this letter says. But the church isn't there. Somewhere along the line, the church is removed. Or we would say raptured or caught out before God starts working through the nation of Israel in the last seven years that he has for them. And so this event, understand that there is a, a difference between uh, the nation of Israel and God's plans for them and the God's plan for the church. Right now we're proclaiming as a unified, not a nation, groups of people getting together of different uh, nations getting together in a thing called the church to proclaim the name of Christ for the nations and the people to see. So this is the event where the church is raptured out, caught out before the events of the tribulation. And as you look at the, the, event, the event here, there is an order that takes place. Things happen to the dead in Christ first before things happen to us. Okay, that, that's the order. Uh, you look at verse number uh, 14, or excuse me, 
Uh, verse number 15, for we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain in the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them. In our language, uh, that's kind of weird. We're not going to prevent them. Like somehow we're holding them down and keeping them from going up. That's not the idea there. The word prevent there means proceed. We're not going to go before them. That's what that term means. That we're not going to precede them which are asleep. And then you see at verse number 16, at the end, it says this, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then this, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. This event is called the coming of the Lord. And the event of people going to go to the Lord and be with him is described in verse number 17 as a meeting Okay, to meet the Lord in the air. Now that phraseology of meeting and this idea of, uh, well, the voice of the archangel, a trump, a command from God, has overtones that Roman and Greek culture would understand. You go, what do you mean? In Roman and Greek culture, when you had a royal official show up, you had a big to-do about that, but it started with people meeting that dignitary outside of town. You would send a delegation if there was individual, an individual of importance, a king, a Caesar, uh, some general. You would have a, a delegation go out and meet this one. The sovereign of the city, the, the mayor would go out and, and go out. And so an imperial visit would, would have these type of things as a part of it. Great pomp, magnificent celebrations, rich banquets, speeches that praised the visitor that was from the government, a visit to the local temple, rich donations, celebrations of games, sacrifices, statues dedicated, arches and other buildings constructed. Money was minted to commemorate the event. Crowns of gold might be given, and at times a new era was inaugurated. But you had people that started this whole thing outside preparing the way. This word meet was also used to describe what some individuals did when Paul came to Rome. Kind of an unusual thing, but you read it in Acts chapter 28, where the Apostle Paul, first of all, had been shipwrecked, but then he had to go by uh, land to go up the coast of Italy to Rome, and it says that a delegation, as you read in Acts 28 and verse 15, that a delegation came out and was sent from Rome to meet Paul as he came into that city giving him an official you know, welcoming, even though he was a prisoner at the time. The Christians were honoring him as a guest of their community and met him outside the walls of Rome and then eventually were with him as he came into Rome. See, this is what you have pictured here. People hearing this type of terminology back in that day would have recognized, oh, meeting a dignitary before he actually comes down or into a town. This is what we've got described here. Someone uh, or an event where a royal official, you go, who's this? God, specifically Jesus, who is coming back and you have individuals that go to greet him before he actually gets back to earth. 
You say, well, what's going on here in this? We're given some of the events that will take place along with this rapture. There are three things that are described as you read in verse number uh, 16. It says this, that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. And here's what you have. You have a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. You go, what is this? You know, what are these things that are a part of the Lord coming back to take those that have died in Christ and those that are alive in Christ uh, to meet him? You have these three events. That first thing where it says the voice of God is really a statement that should be taken this way. The word voice there is the idea of command. It's the kind of thing that a general would state and declare something and it was unquestioned and the people in his army uh, and his units, the, the, the military groups that were there would hear his voice and respond to it. Okay? That's what you have here. You go, what is said? It's not told to us. It's just that there's a command and it's from God himself calling people forth and some have simply described it you know can you imagine have been being at an event like the raising of lazarus from the dead and that tombstone is rolled away that is moved over uh and all of a sudden this statement lazarus come forth you know that wasn't a question or a declarative statement that was a command and it may very well be that Christ is calling to his followers that are in Christ, that have believed on him, that are part of the church, that he says, come forth, come out of that world, come out of the grave, those of you who are there. That may very well be what it is, but we're not told specifically what it is, but it's a command. You have, secondly, this thing that is called the voice of the archangel. You go, what is that? Okay, there's two things you have to, to discuss here. What's an archangel? Okay, there's only one individual that is described as an archangel in our Bible, and it is the archangel Michael. You find this in, in uh, Jude, ch or Jude chapter, there's no chapter, Jude verse 9. And this declaration that he is uh, battling with Satan over the body of Moses, uh, he's described as an archangel. Uh, this is one that, as you look through, that there are individuals in the book of Daniel, angels that are called the chief of the princes and the like, that there very well may be multiple archangels. We don't know. But you have the voice of the archangel, and you go, well, what's going on here? We've already had a command. Most, most describe it this way, that it is a sound of triumph. It's like a choir. You know, you have this even when people are trying to, you know, in film and in industry like this, where they have something grand where a command goes out and then you have this choir that is, you know, blasting in the background that is in triumph. That very well is probably what's going on. You think about what many of the angels are doing when they announce things. Thought about this when you had the announcement of the first coming of Christ. You had a few announcements that were quiet, quiet, but then you had, well, the shepherds, suddenly after that one angel is there, there is a choir of angels. 
singing glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill to men. There's this kind of a choir that's going on. That's probably what you have going on here when it talks about the voice of the archangel. You've got an angelic choir led by the archangel that is a part of this. The third thing that you have here is the trump of God. Now, the trumpet, uh, both in Roman and uh, Jewish culture, played an important role. It was uh, used to give commands. No commands were given in the Roman army without some sort of trumpet uh, being played, sort of like in, in our Civil War and Revolutionary War times. It was uh, the drumbeat. The drum would communicate what was supposed to happen. Uh, but the trumpet would make clear what was supposed to happen. That could be an element here of this, but in Jewish culture and even in Roman culture, you played a trumpet to call people together for an assembly. You know, how do you get people to respond? Even in today's culture, think about this, the first Tuesday of every month uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning, what happens you know, sometimes it's frightening if things are going on. We got the, the weather sirens or the air raid sirens, whatever you want to call them, that go off, that they test these things. And, and you suddenly go, oh, well, there's something bad going on. Well, if it's some other time than that Tuesday morning, first of the month uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning, and that thing goes off, you're, you're trying to figure out, okay, everyone can hear it. They can't ignore it. What's going on? This is how it was in Jewish culture as you read through uh, even the Exodus event when the nation of Israel is supposed to do certain things, go in certain directions, or to gather for meeting, there was a trumpet played. And it would blare, a horn would sound. And so it may be as you, you have this trump of God, it may be just a, a going and reinforcing the command of uh, Jesus as he comes out and makes this declaration, but it may be that this is a trump that is calling for the gathering of the saints that are in Christ. So that, that may be very well what it is, and that's how it would be used. The question comes, how fast does this event take place? I've had questions otherwise, and I can't answer this. Is this something that the world hears? I don't know. We're not told. You know, do they hear the voice of God and the choirs of angels, and they hear this trumpet blast, and they may hear it and not understand what's going on? I, I don't know. Not told this, but this is the things that happen. But how fast does this happen? And you get an answer for this, and I want us to turn over to this. This is the, uh, the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, as we said, is the, the passage, the lengthy passage that Paul gives on the necessity of Jesus Christ rising from the dead, that he had to rise from the grave. It's not that he just merely died and that was it. He had to rise again to show that he had victory over death. That is the demonstration of the resurrection. But in talking about this event in 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about what's this change going to be like when we have this, this body that has been put into the ground and it's suddenly raised again, what is this like? And he goes through this whole discussion and the, the, the basically from 42 or, excuse me, 39 on through uh, 50. 
that the body will be changed when it's raised. But then he says this in verse number 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. Okay, You wouldn't understand this if I didn't tell you. Okay, It's not mysterious in the sense that he's going, okay, I'm giving you the clues, you must figure it out. A mystery in the Bible sense is you've got the information. People in the past didn't have this. You've got it all now. It was a mystery to them. It was hidden to them. But I'm giving you a statement of what's going to happen. Verse number 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. And you say, how fast? Well, he uses different phraseologies here. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's how fast it happens. And somebody says, well, the twinkling eyes, the blink of an eye, and people are arguing that it's probably faster than that. The twinkling refers to a light flickering off an eye without any you know, real movement going on. That's the twinkling of an eye. But whatever the case, it's not a long, drawn-out thing. It's like that. And we will all be changed. You, you find there in verse 52, at the last trump, there's that statement again. And then this, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, okay, and we shall all be changed. He's, he's grouping himself in the woes that are alive. Okay? Those that are dead, they're going to raise that body that fell apart on those individuals. In some cases, have been lying in the ground, deteriorating, rotting, whatever you may think of, describe that. That that body is suddenly in an instant going to be different. You say, what kind of body are they going to have? They're going to have a body like Christ's. That's the change. You go, what kind of body would that be like? It's a body that does not have the sorrows and the sickness and the weakness that we have presently and to go from that body and think about this uh, when individuals die they're at their weakest point uh sometimes just destroyed and ravaged by disease and then in an instant their body is completely different than it ever was and it's like unto christ sinless perfect perfect health for eternity that's the change that takes place and then we are changed we don't go through the valley of the shadow of death if we're here uh, and we haven't died yet. No, we are instantaneously changed to meet the Lord in the air. Now, we have a very understanding here. It says that we're meeting the Lord in the air. It does not say that we meet him when he comes back to earth. Okay, If that had been the case, there would have been a description going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 4, the Lord does have a second coming. Okay, the first coming, Jesus came to earth. Touched down here, you go, how? He was born. The second coming, when we use that title, we're referring to Christ coming back and stepping down on earth and rescuing the nation of Israel. That event taking place. This event takes place at we meet the Lord in the air. You go, well, what goes on? What, what happens uh, during that? We're given some hints of things that happen uh, during the tribulation that we're a part of. 2 Corinthians 5 where it is a description once again of what our body's like right now and what it falls apart, but it's going to be changed one day and be made anew. It also talks about this, that we will all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
to give account of those things that we did, whether they be good or evil. The idea of evil there is just worthless. It didn't have value. And we're going to have to give account for this. You say, could I possibly not make it into heaven as a result of this? No, this is what you might describe as an awards banquet almost in one way. Where at that time, the Lord will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, to those that have been faithful, but there will be. There will be, I believe, for us just sometimes where you're standing before this one who's died and given his life wholly and perfectly for us, and we have to give an account of our life. What do we do with the life that God gave us? That there will be some sorrow and some regret. But understand this, that regret and sorrow is not there for eternity because remember this, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Okay, there will be no more sorrow, no more sin, no more death. I do believe that there is some regret uh, as there is this review as one has to give account to God. There's another thing that it seems like that we're enjoying is that we're part of a thing called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, it talks about this in Revelation chapter 19. You go, well, what's, what's that event? Well, in Jewish culture, you would have understood a marriage worked this way. That the bride stayed where she was at at her father's house. And what happened is this, is that the groom would have to go with a traveling party. And it was usually at night. That's the story of the ten virgins and having their lamps lit and everything like this. But you would go at night and you, the, the groom would go and pick up his bride and bring his bride back to his house, his home. And what you have in this time frame is that the church is enjoying and rejoicing with being with God. It's like a marriage feast. That's the idea. You have the church who is oftentimes described as the bride of Christ that will enjoy being in the presence and being able to fellowship with God uh, in a perfect way with no glass darkly that we can only see partially what's uh, going on and understand partially. No, then we see him face to face. Those are the two things that seem to be going on when the church is raptured out and you've got these events during the tribulation. But understand this. Look at the statement. Verse number 17 so shall we ever be with the Lord. There is never, ever a time where a person after this rapture who has been with Christ and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ in the church age that they'll ever be separated from God again. Ever. It's not going to happen. You'll never suffer separation from God by uh, physical boundaries or the like. You'll be with the Lord. And this is the uh, understanding of believers. You know, I'll, tomorrow I've got a funeral. <laughs> I'm going to be talking about this. I was just talking to Rain about this and just going, you know, some of the things I'm talking about when it comes to this resurrection body. We're going to put a body in a, in a tomb tomorrow, but that's not the end. He's going to be raised. He's with the present, in the presence of the Lord right now. We're looking forward to one day being in the presence of the Lord, never to leave again, Amen. to enjoy being with him wherever he's at and be with him. 
You get to the end of this passage and you go, okay, what do we do with this? An understanding that the Lord's got something coming up where He's going to take us out of this world, rapture us out, catch us or snatch us out of this world and pull us out of this world to be with Him forever. What do you do with this kind of thing? And you have Paul give his conclusion. Okay, here's what you do with the knowledge you have. Verse number 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, now, he doesn't understand this. Okay, this is one thing. He does not say, stop crying. Don't grieve. Okay? And we are ones that are supposed to grieve, but not like those that have no hope i mean there is going to be sorrow in this life when you have people that you know that are in christ that pass from us into the presence of the lord that is us being human that's part of our humanity it's part of who we are to not grieve over the loss of somebody in this life is unusual strange odd and the Apostle Paul doesn't say, stop grieving. But what he does say is this, there is at least some comfort you can take in the midst of your grief. I, I, as a pastor, I have done funerals for people that I am pretty sure didn't know Christ. And there's very little I can say in that other than I can preach the gospel and just say, I am pretty sure the individual uh, that you knew would want me to tell you what is in the Scripture. And I'm going to tell you today. And I give the Gospel. And lift up Christ, because that's what people presently need. But that's about all the comfort I can give. You know, I, I don't make statements like, oh, they're in a better place. They... You know, I don't want to give people comfort on that, but, you know, you also understand that it's a difficult time. But for believers, I can go, that body we're putting in the ground, you've seen it ravaged by whatever disease it's gone, and you've been uh, watching and observing this the whole time, that that body that is now dead will one day be reanimated and be like the body that they never had that perhaps was for all of its life uh, bound by sickness and disease. It will never have that again. And for you, you ought to rejoice in this right now that those people who have died are right now in the presence of the Lord. They are not envying us and looking back and going, I wish I was back there. It's not like the children of Israel when they had been released from Egypt and they go, oh, I wish we could have those leeks and garlics and onions and, and back in Egypt. And No, no, they're, they're not thinking that way. They're rejoicing at being in the presence of the Lord in their soul and spirit. Right. But one day this event makes it the, the key point in, in the human history uh, as far as us as human beings where suddenly you have individuals whose body is changed and can go into the presence of God bodily. And they can do that and enjoy the presence of God body, soul, and spirit. Amen. And so this is the next thing that we look forward to. All of us in this room can think of individuals that we have had to put in the grave 
that are in Christ. They're rejoicing in heaven right now, but there is a glorious event coming where they're going to enjoy new body and you in an instant are going to be right behind them going into the presence of God with a new changed body. And from that point on, you know, this passage doesn't talk about any of the glories of heaven. You realize that? You know, the most important thing that is that you're with the presence of the Lord forever. And so we look forward to that day that we will be with him. We envy in some ways those that have gone on before, uh, but understand uh, we will have the same joy that they have in an instant when we are, well, our bodies changed and we enter into the presence of the Lord. We look forward to that time. So when you go to a a funeral for believers, you can comfort uh, believers with the knowledge that they have a Savior who's promised to come back, take them bodily to this place where they're had prepared for them and that we will one day be with them and we can comfort one another with those words and just go through our tears there is a blessed hope and we look for the glorious appearing of our great god and savior as titus talks about our great god and savior we look forward to that day where we will never have tears again like we've had here in this life because we're in the presence of the lord lord we thank you we're undeserving of what we've even talked about here. We have done so much in our body that uh, has been against you and uh, been opposite of what you wanted. If we didn't have the Scripture, it wouldn't be surprising to us that our bodies never got changed. But because of Jesus Christ and that His body was put in a grave and that He rose again to become the first fruits of those that are asleep, that we can look forward that if we someday here near soon we die then eventually our bodies will join us in the presence of the lord it's an undeserved gracious gift you've extended to us lord help us in times of sorrow at the loss of fellow believers believing family members that we understand that this is not it and that we would be comforted by it but that we have a glorious eternity to be a part of never to be separated from you forever the one who is life the one that we have been created to fellowship with that that is something that we have to look forward to and so lord help us to be solid in passages like this and the comfort it's intended to give that even in our tears in this life, we are not shaken like the rest of the world that has no hope, no consciousness of what's going to happen in the future and don't understand. So we thank you for your word, the encouragement it gives. May we rest upon it and rest upon your goodness and your promises. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.